to invite you to open your Bibles to Joshua 6. That's where we're going to start this morning. We are in a sermon series on the book of Joshua called The Promised Land, believing that just as the Lord led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, just as he delivered them, he also led them into something. He led them into the promised land. The Bible describes this land as land flowing with milk and honey, a land full of blessing. But this land, make no mistake about it, this promised land that God had promised to them was also full of trials and challenges and difficulties. And at times they would find it completely overwhelming, the circumstances they'd find themselves in. This is the promised land that God had for his people. And this pattern we find in the Old Testament is the pattern we find in the New Testament. That Jesus, who calls us out of our sin, Jesus, who delivers us by our belief in Him, Jesus, who saves us, also calls us into something. And that something is a new life. You might even call it a promised life. It's a life in and through the promised one. It's a life to be found in Jesus Christ. And much like the promised land, You might have expected it to be simpler, easier, and less challenging. But yet the promised life, the life in and with Jesus, is full of trials. It's full of challenges and difficulties and circumstances that we will find completely and totally overwhelming. Joshua 1, God called Joshua to be strong and courageous. He called Joshua to take him at his word. And to live like his word was true. So we've watched Joshua trust the Lord as they crossed the Jordan River. We watched Joshua trust the Lord when they were called to circumcise the army. And last week we opened up Joshua 6 to see the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Because Joshua and the Israelites were believing the words of God. They were following him, and they were believing even to the point of obedience, even when obedience seemed foolish. God had declared it would happen, and it did. And yet, the more you lean into the story of Joshua and Jericho, the more you will see some details of the story that we won't skip and we cannot gloss over. You may not have noticed last week, I I missed a couple of verses along the way, Not purposefully, I'm picking them up this week because as you lean into teaching God's word, you don't just pick and choose passages. You take all of it, the easy and the difficult. And this morning we get the difficult. Skipping this would be akin to teaching the story of Joshua's, or excuse me, of Noah's ark and thinking the story was only about collecting animals while missing the fact that while eight were saved, Hundreds of thousands of people drowned in judgment. Or teaching Genesis 19, considering Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt, and skipping the reality that the entire cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed with sulfur and fire in judgment. Now turn with me into Joshua 6. Let's take a look again. We'll again set the table for you. The first five verses go this way. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all of the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city will fall down flat, and all the people shall go up, everyone straight before them. And just like last week, we see that the table is set for the Israelites to choose obedience. We see that it's set, that God has declared that something has has already happened, and they need to walk into that reality. That's what we preached last week. And last week's message stands firm. God has already accomplished something on your behalf and he calls you in obedience to walk through it. That's believing in Jesus in the New Testament. And he's calling them here to walk around the city for six days and on the seventh to walk around it seven times. Now let's skip down to verse 15. This is the obedience section. And on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times, verse 16. And then the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Again, if we pause here, we skip here. This is the story that you were taught as a kid. This is the story that Christian schools act out as a play. They always skip this next part. That's why we're not. Let's pick up verse 17. Because this is what happens when all the people shout. And all the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now sit on that phrase for just a minute. Devoted to the Lord for destruction. Because there's some heft in that phrase. There's some weight in that phrase. Let's continue. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Now there's this heft of devoted to the Lord for destruction, and yet even in the midst of that, we preach this in Joshua 2, that Rahab had made a covenant with the spies that had been sent into the land, that Rahab was to be saved, that even in the midst of judgment, there is salvation. I would remind you a couple of places in the New Testament, Hebrews and James, to be precise, that give Rahab credit for having faith that she believed in the one true God in the midst of a city full of pagans, full of idolaters. She heard of the Lord. She believed in the Lord and she was saved. And her presence in this book, her testimony in this book testifies to God's mercy to save those who would call out on his name. It testifies that he makes himself known to all people everywhere. It says that clearly in Romans 1. But it also serves to testify to the reality of unbelief. That if there's belief, there's also unbelief. And the city and everyone in it was in unbelief. 
everyone was to be devoted to destruction. That's what Joshua puts before us, verse 18. But you, keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction. Pause. Not only are there people devoted to destruction in this moment, there are things that are devoted to destruction. Things that you're called to stay away from. Normal things, but God says, stay far away, stay clear. Keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you've devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. The Lord and Joshua start to forecast that God will hold you accountable for participating in things he says no to. This, by the way, absolutely forecasts Joshua 7 for us where we'll be next week, where they do just this. They didn't obey. They didn't heed the warning that was given to them over and over and over again. You've heard it once. Deuteronomy testifies to it plenty. Verse 19. But all the silver and the gold, this talking about the things devoted to destruction, and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord, verse 20. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went into the city and every man straight before him and they captured the city. And here's the hard one. Verse 21. This is the reason why people don't spend their quiet times in Deuteronomy and Joshua. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. What the Bible here testifies is that the men were killed. The women were killed. People of all ages, the young and the old, even the animals were slaughtered. Have you ever come across this passage before? This is the passage that atheists take you to. Read a long article. This is Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins. These are their favorite passages in the Bible to famous New World atheists. Because they find a God that's totally indefensible. And yet, friends, we have to reconcile that with the rest of our scriptures. Is our God completely indefensible? What's happening here? Is this God? Is this his people gone astray? What's happening? We have to have a theology big enough to hold this. At least if we want to have a biblical theology. So the first thing I want you to get your mind around is I want you to see that this is a commanded incident. It's not incidental. Look, by the way, back at verse 17 if you've got your Bible. This happens before anything happens. Joshua, under the orders from the Lord, commands this to happen, which is to say this that the Canaanites in Jericho were wiped out, not because there was an angry general, not because they despised these people groups, not because they wanted ill for them, 
but specifically because God had commanded it. So if there's anyone on the hook in this story, you cannot out God. All the responsibility falls to him and completely on him. Now you need to know that long before they entered into the promised land, God forecast this for them over and over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. It shows up in Deuteronomy 7, 13, 18, 20. It's an unavoidable fact through the book of Deuteronomy, one of the many reasons why I probably will never preach the book of Deuteronomy. So let's turn to Deuteronomy 20. Moses is the speaker here. If you're not familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, it is Moses preaching sermons to Israel. Moses is the primary spokesperson. He's teaching Israel, trying to prepare her to enter the promised land, trying to lay out, having come out of slavery, what does holiness look like, what does righteousness look like, and how do you separate yourself from the world. And the whole of Deuteronomy 20 is on dealing with warfare. But we're just going to pay attention to three short verses. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 20. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. This is God's word through the mouth of Moses. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Joshua 6 stands on Deuteronomy 20. In fact, if you've still got a finger in Joshua 6, I'd encourage you in the margins to mud a little note to push yourself back to Deuteronomy 20 to rightly understand Deuteronomy 7, 13, 18, and 20 gives the full background that you need to walk into passages like Joshua 6 to recognize that it is the Lord God Himself that has commanded them to be destroyed. Which leaves us two questions to handle. The first is this. Is God justified in his judgment of people? Now we can square this on the Canaanites. Is God justified to judge the Canaanites? Is he justified to judge the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites? But we can make it bigger than that. Is God justified in his judgment of people. If you look into Canaanite culture, you would find a people that is so thoroughly wrapped up in false worship. That is to say, not merely denying the reality of God, not merely denying the Lord God, but worshiping other gods to an extent that included rampant temple prostitution that included rampant child sacrificing all based in worship to false gods. Let me point you back to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12. This is his warning. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. 
Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. That's one example given in the book of Deuteronomy that testifies to the charges that God is laying against these people. They were guilty. Now there's weight in this, isn't there? And some of the weight that I need you to feel is not God's ability to judge these specific people because as you lean into the Scriptures, you would find... The better question is not why does God judge these people. The better question is why does God not judge everyone? Because you're just as guilty. And literally by you, I mean literally you. That's not a plural y'all. As if everyone else here is guilty, but you you're doing fine. There's a weight here for us to feel that God is right in His judgment towards every living thing. And He's sovereign in His judgment. He's sovereign in His judgment. If you want to watch churches fall apart, watch these kinds of truths. Do you know why I testified to you that this week? Because last week, the Pope testified in an interview that he doesn't think hell is real. That's the Pope. The head of the Catholic Church who speaks authoritatively as if the voice of God. Now, if we want to pick on the Pope, we can. But you need to understand, like every mainline denomination is doing this too. It's that first step when we stop, start leaning into... The authority of man versus the authority of God. And we think men are so important. We ought to be able to do what we want and what we think is right. And we start divorcing ourselves from a position where God has authority. This is the first slide in a slippery slope. This is why when we walk through a series on sanctification, we forecasted, you know why the world is sliding morally? Because they've lost a view of the authority of God and they've lost a view of sanctification. Because if you don't let God say no to you, then everything else is okay. If God can't say no, if God can't stand in judgment and say, that is not right, that is not permissible, you cannot do that. If God cannot say no to you, if He cannot stand in judgment of you, you lose everything. It's why when you come to passages like this, a famous author came out with a book two months ago questioning why Joshua could even be considered part of our Bible. Why? Because he denies the very sovereignty of God. You can't reason your way around these discussions in the Bible if you take away God's sovereignty and you take away his right to judge. Because then God's just a jerk. He's picking on people indiscriminately. And yet what the Bible would testify to us, what a biblical theology would testify to us, is that we have to hold on to God's sovereignty. That He rules. 
and that he reigns and that as a ruling, reigning authority of everything, he has the right to judge. And if we don't hold on to that, then our theology is not biblical. Why? Because we have a flood in the scriptures, which is a judgment passage in its nature. And we have Sodom and Gomorrah, which are judgment passages by their nature. Note, you've probably never taught your kids Sodom and Gomorrah. But you probably have taught them Noah's Ark. We've got like three sets at home. Like, what is our ability to say, hey, God, it's like this. He likes kangaroos. But yet we're unwilling to lean into the full thrust of that passage. To see that it's a judgment passage. And we have these stories in the book of Joshua. They're judgment passages. We'll walk into them time and time again. And don't think Israel gets left alone in this. Remember last week, God didn't pick Israel because they were the best. He didn't pick them because they were the smartest. Picked them because he loved them. And he will judge them. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. There's a great testimony there for a guy to say, yeah, Jesus was my brother. Literally. If we get to pull authority from some guy, let's consider Jude for a moment. He writes this in his letter. Jude, there's only one chapter, so it's Jude 5 through 7. I'm not reading you two chapters. I'm just giving you two verses. But this is what Jude writes. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, do you see the slippery slope Jude's forecasting for us? I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, do you see the slippery slope? People's ability to hold truth, grasp proof, and then go, eh, happened in Jude's day. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now listen to what Jude is saying. This ties us back to the 1 Corinthians 10 passage we started in this series on to say that the Old Testament exists as an example for us to look at and to consider. And what Jude says to us about the Old Testament is that God stands in judgment against the wicked. And he always has. What Jude testifies to is the judgment is real. And what he says he will do, he will do. And he appeals to God's word as the basis of that. So this is God being consistent with his character. In the Old Testament, in the New, judging the wicked. And yet there's another reason why. Deuteronomy 20, there are several other places I could push to here. Deuteronomy 20, we're in that passage already. Let's look at verse 18, because as 
Moses writes, and he's forecasting this devoted to destruction. There's a reason why, verse 18. I need you to lean in on this for a second. Verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So God who is right to judge these people based on their wickedness, judges them because they deserve to be judged and so that you'll learn a lesson not to do it. So that you won't learn from their ways, practice their ways, and be like them. Moses writes several times in Deuteronomy, in fact. If you don't do this, they will teach you abominable practices. They will teach you idolatry. They will teach you pagan worship. They will lead you astray. And furthermore, it might cost you your soul. Dr. John Thompson, in his commentary on Deuteronomy, wrote this. If the manner of expression appears unusual, if calling for their destruction, if that seems heavy or weighty, this is what he writes. The underlying principle is valid, namely that anything that tends to undermine Israel's total allegiance to Yahweh is anathema and must be put away. What Dr. Thompson writes is, if it's going to lead you astray, you got to deal with it. It's not worth pursuing it, staying in it. If it's going to lead you astray, you got to be radical about it. What this is talking about, if it's going to lead you astray, it's not merely talking about sin. Remember, we constantly make this distinction that there's a huge difference in Scripture and in life between struggling with sin and walking in it. When you walk in sin, you're worshiping something else. You've chosen a different God. You may not see that, but that's what you're doing. And it must be destroyed. Two observations for you. First, God, who by the way is sovereign, who by the way is omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient. He knows everything. Everything. He has all power, and he's everywhere. God seems to think, it's probably stronger than that, God believes that his people, dare I say it, you and I, are so incredibly weak and impressionable that if exposed to idolatry, we would turn quickly. That's one of the impressions you'd get left with if you studied through Deuteronomy. That God, in his righteous omniscience, and knowing everything about you, seems to believe you are so weak and impressionable that you would fall quickly to idolatry the more you're exposed to it. And the second thing to observe here is that idolatry is clearly so dangerous for you. So dangerous for you 
spiritually. And sin is so dangerous and so dangerous for you spiritually that it's worth reacting to radically. That it's worth reacting to radically. That it's worth getting rid of at any cost. Now, if you think this is merely an Old Testament perspective, let me fast forward you into the New Testament to give you Jesus and the Mount of... He's speaking to Beatitudes. I just lost it. Sermon on the Mount. Thank you. Matthew 5.29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. I've not known Jesus to be sarcastic. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus seems to say, if your eyes are taking you bad places, get rid of them. You'll be better off. Deal with sin radically. Jesus. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. I want you to see what Jesus is talking about. That sin, that idolatry is so pervasive and we're so susceptible to it that we might just think we're falling into sin, but what we're doing is we're falling into idolatry and pagan worship in our own lives and that our lust and desire for sin could be so radical in our lives that it might replace our love for the one true God. And that it's worth getting rid of. It's worth destroying that you might hold on to Jesus. His words. Does he call us to a radical response to sin and idolatry? Clearly. Can we afford to just dabble and play? I'm going to invite you up to preach. Run! Flee from it. For instance, we've considered these hard issues of Joshua 6 and Deuteronomy 20. We're just tapping on the door. I may upload a couple of articles or send them out to you just so you can read more if you want to lean in. But as we finish this morning, there are two things that we need to finish on that we need to get our mind around. And here's the first one. That God is absolutely right in judging everyone. Everyone. And in the Old Testament, he calls his people to pursue a physical purity. Don't touch this. Don't be around that. Don't be exposed to these things. They will render you unclean. You'll have to go through these things. Is that a New Testament reality for us? No. He doesn't call us to that kind of a purity. He calls us to a spiritual purity Now, is there a moral ground in that? Absolutely. Absolutely there is. That's why I'll bring us back to and land us back in Hebrews 10, 14, which served us through our series on sanctification to say this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
Friends, you want to know what God's just, can't even talk. What God's judgment looks like? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. God's judgment in its fullness is expressed at the cross where your guilt was paid for in its entirety. Are you guilty? Yes. Will you be condemned guilty? No. See, that's the difference in the Old Testament covenant and a New Testament covenant. If you walk through the Old Testament, you would see God created ways for them to be good enough, and they were never, ever good enough. That's why God in his sovereignty and in his plan said, these people, they can't do it right. There's only one way to redeem them, and that's to send them the perfect offering, which is my son, and he'll die in their place, taking their punishment, taking the wrath they deserve, taking the judgment that should be laid on them, and I will place it on my son. You've been perfected through Jesus Christ. Those who are being sanctified, those who are becoming more like him. So what does our fight look like? Ephesians 6, 12 and 13, Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. God is not going to call you and say, Hey, let's go into this town and slaughter everybody! God's going to call you to wage war against Satan. A war, by the way, your neck deep in, whether you realize it or not. That's why Paul continues to write, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, you got a shot. Take on the whole armor of God that you'll be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. In Jesus Christ, you can stand firm, according to Paul, against the evil one. Peter would write this, 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And by the way, I don't think Peter's exaggerating. I don't think he's going for hyperbole. I think Satan is a large, immense, terrifying beast that wants to eat you alive. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you in his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Friends, is God a right judge? Always. The Bible confirms it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And yet we have one who stood in our place to take the penalty that was due. We have the one who went to the cross and paid it all on our behalf. Let me pray for us. Father, there are 
always hard passages in Scripture. Difficult things that if we hide from, that if we run from, Father can destroy our faith. I've seen it happen several times. But Father, in your righteousness and your holiness and in your sovereignty, Father, you're completely defensible even in your own book. The things that we don't understand all point to characteristics about you. Are you a God that's all loving? Absolutely. And in your love, you're a right judge. For what kind of judge would look at something wrong and call it right? Father, thank you so much that you exhibit the fullness of the attributes to a degree we don't and can't get our mind around. Father, I'm not always comfortable with the idea of you being a judge because I know how guilty I am. And to that, I just say, praise be the Lord that you sent your son in our place. That the response isn't that Ben had to roll up his sleeves and try harder. That Ben had to work more so that his good would outweigh his bad. The response wasn't that Ben would have to look a certain way or act a certain way. No, the response was that Ben had to believe in Jesus who did it all. We thank you for that. We thank you for that truth. Father, judgment is real. The Old Testament testifies to it, gives us examples and illustrations to it. The New Testament affirms those examples, affirms those illustrations. Father, hell is a real place. And we don't want anyone to go there. Father, would you make us bold in our witness for you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.